So I'm planning what uh, text I would preach this morning. Uh, my desire was to continue looking at the history of Ahab and the prophet Elijah. We don't often have the opportunity to look through the, uh, through the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament narratives. So I wanted to uh, continue what I started uh, 11 weeks ago when we looked at 1 Kings 18 and 19. And so we'll review a little bit of that this morning, but we're going to continue this morning in, in 1 Kings 20 and 21. But before we do that, let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. As we sing this morning about how great your faithfulness is, we know your faithfulness has never waned. Your faithfulness has always been perfect. And God, I pray that this morning that we would respond in worship to you as we, as we see you on display, as we see how you have acted throughout history, your faithfulness to your people, and uh, in the various attributes that we will look at today. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. In October 2021, pro-life activist Mark Houck was accused of assaulting a Planned Parenthood volunteer by quote-unquote violently shoving the volunteer to the ground. This incident was investigated by local authorities. However, it was determined at that time that no crime had been committed. The federal government, however, chose to use this as an opportunity to threaten those who would oppose abortion. The Justice Department let Houck and his attorney know that he was being investigated federally. While Houck denied all accusations, he told the investigators that if they determined they were going to arrest him, that Houck would willingly turn himself in. The DOJ ignored, the Department of Justice ignored that offer and showed up at Houck's home at sunrise in September of 2022 and executed an arrest warrant with many agents armed with rifles to arrest someone who had said would willingly turn himself in. At trial, Houck was found not guilty. Interestingly, no one was prosecuted in the same year for arsons, bombings, or attacks outside of crisis pregnancy centers, which happened numerous times. Fortunately, Houck had the opportunity for his case to be tried before an impartial jury, and he was found to be not guilty. This is a privilege, though, that has only been available in recent world history. Injustice and evil perpetrated against innocent people have happened throughout world history. It's happened in all societies where those in authority have a desire for more power, greed for property that is not theirs, and wish to seek vengeance or to silence those in opposition. The book of 1 and 2 Kings are helpful books for us today because we see in these books how God wants his people to respond when we live in a world that rejects him and celebrates rebellion against him. We don't know who the author of 1 Kings is. However, it includes history close to the Babylonian captivity. So um, the prophet Jeremiah has been postulated as a, as a possible author. And so as we look at this, I want you, invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 20, if you're not there already. In our passage this morning, we'll continue to look at the narrative of Israel's history found in 1 Kings, and we're going to see one of the greatest examples of injustice that has ever occurred, committed by King Ahab in his murder of Naboth and the theft of his property. Then we'll see how God used his faithful prophet Elijah to confront the evil committed by Ahab. And finally, most importantly, throughout the narrative, we're going to see the character of our God on display. 
Now, I realize that the title I've chosen for this morning's sermon, An Evil King, a Faithful Prophet, an Amazing God, it's applicable to at least a third of the Old Testament, right? So the subtitle of Elijah and Ahab, or Ahab and Elijah Part two, I hope, is a helpful subtitle for where we're going to be this morning. And since my daughter pointed out the first time I preached that my, my title was very plain, I hope that this is a little bit more descriptive for you. So 1 Kings begins with Solomon taking the reign of Israel from his father David. And we see Israel at its greatest in its history. However, Solomon's son Rehoboam does not follow in his father's footsteps of faithfulness and the kingdom's divided in chapter 12 with one of Solomon's closest advisors, Jeroboam, leading the 10 tribes to form the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom progresses deeper and deeper into idolatry and not one of its kings is a faithful follower of God. Eleven weeks ago, we saw the prophet Elijah face off with King Ahab and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, which saw the inability of Baal's prophets to get their false god to respond while Yahweh poured out fire on Elijah's sacrifice and demonstrated his power. When we left off in 1 Kings 19, God had reminded Elijah that he was not alone and that there were many others whom God had chosen and who were faithful. This morning, we'll continue with the narrative of King Ahab's reign, and in chapters 20 and 21, we're going to see four attributes of God on display. When chapter 20 begins, we find that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, is preparing to go to war with Israel. Israel Israel was relatively strong militarily throughout Ahab's reign, but at this particular time, his army appears weak. And the possibility is that because of the famine, which was only relieved at the end of uh, 1 Kings, or in 1 Kings 19, had only recently ended, and so the army had not been uh, strengthened militarily. The situation was bad enough that as Ben-Hadad and the Syrian army approached Ahab's capital in Samaria, that Ahab was willing, if you look at verse 5, to... Uh, there's a demand from Ben-Hadaz, as I sent to you, saying, deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children, and that Ahab was willing to pay that tribute. Given what we know about Ahab's wife, he probably should have given her along as well. However, he chose that he did not do that. So the Syrians, however, demanded that they be allowed to plunder the city, and this was too far for Ahab and his advisors to allow that to happen. So it's at this point we see our first attribute of God. Our God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. Look down at verse 13. It says, and behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Even though the northern tribes had separated from Judah, and violated the covenant with God, God still wanted to make his name known to his people. He wanted to make his name known to Ahab and to the rebellious tribes, uh, the 10 tribes that left. This is what he did when he brought Israel out of military, uh, su- militarily superior Egypt and by crossing the Red Sea to make his name great. It's what he did under Joshua through the conquest of Canaan. And it's what he does here is Ahab follows the prophet's advice and Syria is defeated. 
God did not want to make himself known in a powerful way only to his people Israel, however. He also wanted to do it so the Syrians would know that he is God. Look at verse 23. We're going to move relatively quickly through chapter 20 because we want to spend most of our time this morning in chapter 21. But in verse 23 of chapter 20, he says, And the servants of the king said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they are stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. The Syrians changed their strategy of instead of attacking Israel in the hills, they figured, let's attack them in the plains. Let's make them fight us in the plains because in their misguided concept of who God is, in their polytheistic mind, their belief was that Israel's God was only a God of the hills and he had no power in the plains. And so the Syrians wrongfully assumed that their God would have power in the plains. So look how the Lord responds though in verse 27. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. They vastly outnumbered Israel. Verse 28. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God wants to demonstrate that he is the Lord over the Syrians, people who have no clue who he is and who would reject him. God also wants to demonstrate that he is the Lord to Israel, people who do know who he is, who did have his law and still rejected him. We think, of, we think of jealousy in a negative concept because we're not to be jealous of what others have. We're not to be jealous when others receive attention or seek to exalt ourselves at someone else's expense. But because God is God, he rightfully demands our worship. He is jealous for our worship. Look at the, first, look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, verse 4, it says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. When we fail to give God credit, and we take credit for ourselves, we are stealing his glory. Or when we think we know better, and we disregard what God has called us to do, the Lord is jealous, and rightfully so, for our worship. Listen to Deuteronomy 4, 23 and 24. It says, take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. We saw that in display on Mount Carmel, a jealous God, a consuming fire, as Elijah's sacrifice was honored and the prophets of Baal were killed. The Lord brought Ahab, in chapter 20, two great victories, and his victory would have been complete if he had been obedient to the law 
and executed Ben-Hadad. However, Ahab allowed Ben-Hadad to out-negotiate him, even from a position of weakness, and let him go. If you look at verse, uh, at verse 33, or verse, uh, yeah, verse 33, they said, go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father, I will restore. Well, yeah, you, got, you lost. You, your, your army was defeated. They're already restored. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Ahab's leniency, now according to the law, idol worship and those who opposed Yahweh were to be eliminated from the land. But Ahab chose to be lenient to Ben-Hadad. Joshua did this when he failed to consult with God and he rashly entered into a treaty with the Gibeonites, believing that they lived far away from the land and did not live in the land. Famously, Saul did not, did not slay Agag and the prophet Samuel had to do the work for him. So Ahab is confronted for his blatant disregard of the law, and in 2042, he's told by the prophet, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. Ahab has been told that he will be killed and his family will be killed, because our God is a jealous God and demands worship, demands complete obedience. Well, this brings Ahab to yet another crossroads in his life. He had witnessed God's display of holiness and power on Mount Carmel, and he had failed to repent. The Lord had given him two great victories over the Syrians, a much more powerful army, and yet he failed to respond in obedience. Now he's been confronted over his disobedience to the law, yet instead of repentance, we read in verse 43 that Ahab went to his house vexed and sullen. He was angry, he was annoyed, he was irritated, and he was pouting in self-pity over the word that had been delivered to him. Our text shows us how Ahab became so dominated by what he wanted that he is described as vexed, three separate times in six verses. It is this vexation, along with his greed and his covetousness, which leads to one of the greatest displays of evil found in all of Scripture. Look at chapter 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. From our perspective, this does not look like such a bad deal, right? Kings have a lot of resources. Naboth had land that was, valu that was valuable. Why not take advantage of some simple supply and demand? Sell the property, make a profit, find better neighbors than Ahab and Jezebel. The reason he did not sell the property or take up Ahab on his offer is because Naboth feared the Lord. He knew his law and he wanted to honor God by obeying it completely, quite unlike Ahab did at the end of chapter 20. 
Listen as I read from Leviticus 25, verse 23 and following, and you see why Naboth did not want to sell the land or trade the land. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Verse 26, if a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released. He shall return to his property. The land was not Naboth's to sell. It was the Lord's. It had been allotted to each family, and the land was to remain in the family. Naboth knew that taking Ahab's offer of a trade or selling it to him would not be merely unwise. It would be sinful. It would violate what God had said in Leviticus. Ahab should have known that Naboth's answer would be a hard no. But we see his response in verse 4, back in 1 Kings 21. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Parents, you don't need me to describe Ahab's reaction because you've probably seen something similar before. Well, actually, all of you know what I'm talking about because you've been kids once and have probably acted in similar ways before, and maybe not even when you were kids. The king of Israel who had defeated the Syrians in battle is laying on his bed and pouting because he coveted his neighbor's land and had been thwarted in his attempt to obtain it. But it gets worse as his wife gets involved. Get verse 25. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember that Jezebel is pure evil. It was she who was instrumental in making Baal worship the state religion of the northern kingdom, and she had learned this from her father, named Eshbaal, who had killed the king of Sidon to make himself king. When Elijah showed up after killing the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, she in turn threatened his life. Look what she does in verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city the elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. 
As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city, stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. Jezebel doesn't care about if God is cursed. She's cursed God in her idol worship. Ahab the same. Yet she uses that under the guise of religion to take advantage of Naboth and to take his property. Jezebel's actions are no less than premeditated murder. She gives direct orders, signed, sealed, and delivered in the name of her husband, the king, to the city leaders to put these false witnesses on the stand. Why two witnesses? Though Jezebel hated the things of the Lord, she was aware of the law of the Lord and knew that two witnesses were necessary for somebody to be executed for a capital crime. Instead of obeying God's law, she twisted it to accomplish her selfish motives. What made these men who testified worthless men? It might be that they were men who were willing to take a bribe. They might have been criminals who exchanged truth for leniency, for punishment that they were facing. The two who lied were clearly responsible. But an even greater degree of responsibility falls on the elders and leaders of Jezreel who knew that what they were orchestrating was a sham. They knew that their actions would not just involve injustice and theft, but they were the ones who directly ordered the worthless men to lie, knowing that such testimony would result in Naboth's execution. Well, Naboth's response to Ahab showed his fear of God. The leaders of Jezreel demonstrated their fear of man over the fear of God. Those leaders received their, their due reward from Ahab and Jezebel, but they're also receiving the penalty for fearing man over God. Many of us in positions of authority, whether it's in the church or government, or maybe if we're students in school or businessmen or employees, will face the same temptations these leaders had. The temptation to fear man, and to fear temporary consequences over fearing God. Take the opening illustration involving Mark Houck. It was not one person who brought about his arrest, but a chain of people along the way who were all too willing to go along with what was demanded because they feared loss of comfort, status, position, or pay over holding to what was right. After World War II, as the Nazis responsible for the death camps and concentration camps were arrested and tried, what was one of their common defenses? We were just following orders. Those lower-level Nazis were rightfully convicted because there's a standard of right and wrong, and our standard is clearly laid out in God's word. And we are to do what God commands even if it costs us our life. Ultimately, the responsibility for what happened to Naboth, though, falls at the feet of King Ahab. Look at verse 15. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Ahab was not a victim of his wife's evil. He was complicit in her actions. 
He allowed for it to happen and looked to reap the benefits of her action. It was he who ultimately took the land, the land that he greedily wanted. It was he who was ultimately responsible for the death of not only Naboth, but if we read in 2 Kings 9.26, Naboth's sons were also killed. And they were killed because, as we read in Leviticus, all family heirs had to be eliminated or possession of the land would simply fall to the next rightful heir. So Naboth and his sons had to die for for Ahab to complete his theft. To get a sense of the depth of evil, compare the actions of Ahab and Jezebel with the Ten Commandments. If you picture your list of Ten Commandments, we already know they violated the first by having other gods before God. We know they violated the second by instituting idol worship. Looking backward from the end of the list, we see Ahab violated the tenth by coveting Naboth's land, which he had no right to. Then they violated the ninth by arranging false witnesses, which resulted in violations of the eighth and the sixth by stealing the land and ultimately in the murder of Naboth and his sons. I'm going to go out on a limb with with Ahab and Jezebel and and guess that they probably weren't very good at honoring their father and mother either, but we don't have that from the text. This horrendous act of evil culminates in the response of our Lord where we again see his character on display. In chapter 20, we saw the jealousy of God. Now we see the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God. Look down at verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? Elijah did not witness these events. We do not know where he was while this occurred. Perhaps he was still in the wilderness of Damascus. Maybe he was preparing Elisha for the ministry he would have as he had chosen Elisha as as his successor at the end of chapter 19. Nothing, however, escapes the eyes of the Lord. He sees and knows everything down to the most minute detail. He knows exactly what has transpired, exactly where Ahab is now, and sends his best prophet to deliver yet another message to Ahab. He tells Elijah to ask him, have you killed and also taken possession? Word of advice, if your parents, the police, or a prophet of God ask you if you did something, it's because they know you already did it. In Elijah's case, this was because he was told directly by God. Scripture's best illustration of God's omniscience is found in Psalm 139. You can either turn with me there or listen as I read. But in verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I'm not going to preach a second passage to you this morning. Our narrative is is long enough. But what do we see here? God knows everything we do, our sitting down, our rising up. He clearly knew everything 
that Ahab and Jezebel had done. He knows each of our thoughts. He knows not just some of our ways, but all of our ways. He knows our words before we ever form them. He knows the harsh words you say to your wife. He knows the demeaning comment you make to a friend. He knows the coarse joke you share with a coworker. One pastor in preaching Psalm 139 quoted the great theologian Stephen Charnock who said, quote, when we sin, there is a form of atheism that takes place in our lives. When we sin, we act as if God does not exist or does not know what we are doing. When is the last time you have stopped to think about this? God knows everything there is to know about you. God's omniscience is not just something to dwell on, though, for the purpose of restraint. Because he knows all things, he also protects us. When you're grieving the loss of a loved one, he knows our emotions. And God is a God of comfort. When you're facing a difficult conversation with a loved one or a conversation with somebody in a counseling situation, God helps guide you through his word so that you would glorify him because he knows everything, everything you need to know in that situation. When life seems impossible or overwhelming, God knows every intimate detail of the situation in a perfect way. God is a jealous God. We have seen that he's an omniscient, an all-knowing God. Third, we see that God is a just God. He is a God of perfect justice. Let's keep reading our story. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. It's a gruesome description of what's going to happen to Ahab. Verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There are many prophets who proclaimed faithful messages throughout scripture. In the last chapter, we saw an unnamed prophet who confronted Ahab. But Elijah is a Hall of Famer level prophet. And where he had gone into hiding and had to be strengthened by God, we see that he does not mince words as he proclaims to Ahab what Ahab has brought on himself in his murder of Naboth. Elijah vividly describes what Ahab faces as a result of his sin. Dogs licked up Naboth's blood because Ahab had killed him. As a result, Ahab's own blood would be licked. When we see that Ahab is still, he's still not learned from chapter 18, where he called Elijah the troubler of Israel. Ahab wanted to lay the blame for the consequences he faced at Elijah's feet when they were simply the just consequences of his own sin. Now Ahab escalates that language from the troubler 
of Israel, and he calls Elijah his enemy, when in reality, Elijah is simply being the faithful messenger of God. Elijah was not Ahab's enemy. Ahab was the enemy of God. Do you do this when you're confronted in your sin, though? Because too often, we find ourselves being like Ahab. Do you look with disdain on the loving brother who gently asks you questions and has a concern for you, but you wish that they would mind their own business? As your conscience is pricked, as you hear a sermon each week from this pulpit or from a chapel at TMU, do you fight, do you fight it by saying, well, you don't know my situation? God is consistent in his judgment. Because of the wickedness of Ahab, both in this chapter and what we've seen in previous chapters, God will utterly destroy Ahab's line and the kingdom will be ripped away from him. Jezebel herself is specifically told what will happen to her as well. As Elijah told, told Ahab, this is what God did with Jeroboam. When the kingdom split and Jeroboam became the first king of the northern tribes, he abandoned the worship of Yahweh and established his own, his own idols, two calves of gold, and told the people no longer to go to Jerusalem to worship, to worship at the temple. And he appointed priests who were not Levites, all in direct violation of God's law. 1 Kings 14.7, if you want to turn back a couple of pages, gives us the message God sent to Jeroboam when he committed his sin of idolatry. And God sent to Jeroboam through Jeroboam's wife, go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, this is 14 verse seven, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David who kept the commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who are before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, see the jealousy of God again, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone." Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, from what Elijah told Ahab? It's what God did with King Basha when Elijah mentions here, uh, whom Elijah mentions here, and who was four kings before Ahab. The end of chapter 15 tells us Basha was evil and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. The Lord told Basha through Jehu in chapter 16, verses two through four, since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house and will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and any one of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Ahab would have been aware of this recent history. Jeroboam's reign had only ended 36 years before Ahab's began. This was not ancient history. 
What made Ahab's sin particularly egregious is that it was not just his own sin. Back in chapter 21, verse 22. Ahab is condemned because he made Israel to sin. Ahab and Jezebel ordered those under them in authority to, to participate in their crimes, and on a national level, they led the people toward idol worship. You might hear this and think, well, lucky me, I'm not a king, so this isn't applicable. But put it this way, husbands, are you leading your wives in ways that might cause them to sin? Parents, are the things you're teaching your kids to prioritize going to lead them closer to the Lord? or further away from the Lord. Students, are you doing anything that would tempt someone else to follow you into sin, or are you helping those who you interact with to become more like Christ? Back at our text, verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. This is not how you want to be described by a just God. It's tempting to look at Ahab and to think that his actions were so awful that you would never act the way he did. Are you sure about that, though? If you had absolute power and authority and from a human perspective thought you could get away with things without consequence, would you be tempted to use your power to obtain what you selfishly wanted and remove anyone that was standing in your way? Do we not already see that to some degree in our own county and in places around the country where there's no prosecution of certain crimes and there's a daily cycle of more and more crime as people pursue their own greed and do not fear any consequences? Last night saw the ambush and murder of Deputy Sheriff Ryan Klinkenbrumer, who was working in Palmdale last night. It wasn't a traffic stop, just pulling out of the station to go grab something to eat. And someone pulled up next to him, fired his gun, and shot him in the head. As far as I know, no arrest has been made yet. Guaranteed detectives are working hard to determine who's responsible for that. But how do we think about such things this morning as we see the character of our God? Our God is omniscient, and our God is a just God. He knows every single detail. And even, and I don't think it'll happen, but even if it were to happen that the suspect who killed this deputy last night were to get away and think that he's living scot-free, he faces a God of perfect justice and we don't need to seek vengeance on our own, that our God, our God will, will execute his justice. We don't know why he allows innocent Naboth to be killed. We don't know why he allows Deputy Klinkenbrumer last night to be ambushed and murdered. But we know our God knows every intimate detail, and we know our God is a God of perfect justice. For honest with ourselves, especially those of you who do not know the Lord, don't you find yourself only avoiding evil because you fear the temporal consequences that such choices would make? It may not be to the same degree of outward expression as Ahab and Jezebel, 
But if you're not in Christ, you find yourself this morning the enemy of God. Though your demise may not be spelled out in the same depth as what we read with Ahab, Scripture promises that all who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ will face eternal judgment. As Todd prayed this morning, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. In chapter 20, we saw that God is a jealous God who demands our worship and will not share his glory with any other so-called gods. God's response to Ahab, Ahab's murder of Naboth, we're reminded that God is an omniscient God. He knows everything. Then we saw that God is a just God. He will not fail to punish sin. Finally, the end of chapter 21, we see that God is a merciful God. Ahab is crushed by what he hears will happen to him. Look at his response to Elijah's prophecy in verse 27. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. The obvious question to ask upon reading this verse is to ask, is this genuine repentance from Ahab? Ahab clearly demonstrates grief. But we know from what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7 that there's a difference between worldly grief and godly grief. Godly grief produces repentance where there is not only a recognition and a confession of sin, but there's a genuine turning from that sin. There's a desire to never return to that life of sin. And because of faith in Christ, there's a desire to live only for the glory of God. We do not see such godly grief with Ahab. We won't look at it this morning, but in chapter 22, we see that Ahab does not want to hear the words of God's prophets. He does not want to submit to their words, and he never abandons his idol worship. Why was Ahab grieving then? Possibly it was because he knew that which he, ref- which he refused to repent and obey from God's work, what God had commanded, he knew in the back of his mind that God's prophets were always right. What they prophesied would happen. Their batting average was a 1,000 because it was the word of God. It may have included grief over knowing what would happen to his children in the future of his family line. Even most unbelievers want, want the best for their children even if the priorities are wrong. The grief may also be combined with a clear acknowledgement that what he did was sinful and was an affront to a holy God, but yet his heart was hardened and he refused to submit to God's leading. This grief is not unlike the public demonstration of humility that we might see in a politician who's been caught in some embarrassing act which discredits them, which unfortunately we have seen even this week. What I want to see in these concluding verses, however, is the mercy of of our God. Look how God responds to Ahab's grief. Verse 28. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Many have incorrectly said that in the Old Testament, God is a God of judgment, but in the New Testament, he's a God of grace and mercy. 
This is not true. God has always been a good God. His goodness, shown in his grace and mercy, were always on display in the Old Testament, and there will never be a change to his goodness. After God displayed his power on Mount Carmel, he showed his common grace by giving rebellious Israel something it did not deserve by giving them relief from the famine and giving them rain. In this chapter, we are reminded that God shows his mercy even to unbelievers. If anyone deserved God's immediate judgment, if we were making the decisions, it's Ahab, right? Killing innocent Naboth. However, God sees that Ahab has humbled himself. This humility may not be complete to the point of Ahab turning to God in faith, but even in his outward religious actions, there's a demonstration of humility. Because of that humility, God does not give Ahab what he deserves now. Instead, he delays the full extent of his judgment that Ahab is going to face. God still shows mercy to unbelievers today. Do not think that because you've not been caught in your sin or faced any severe consequences that you will ultimately escape judgment. Even this morning, I'm sure many of us passed people out walking their dog, sitting at the coffee shop, uh, out at their own kids' soccer games who are either ignorant of God or willingly choosing their own desires over the Lord's. Yet our Lord still allows them to enjoy many of their days. He is still kind to them. And as we read in Romans 2 back in July, the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. Naboth was unjustly accused and was murdered for selfish greed. But Naboth was not sinless. While the circumstances were sinful that led to his death, Naboth, like each one of us, ultimately deserved to die because he, like us, was still a sinner. Jesus Christ was also unjustly accused. Unlike Naboth, however, there was no sin in him. Jesus was perfect, God in the flesh, and came to bring the good news that he would take it upon himself, just like we sang this morning, for all who would believe in him. The judgment that all, that all mankind deserves, death, he would take upon himself. You may be here this morning, and like Ahab, know you are in sin, but have refused to turn to God in faith. God is being merciful to you. He is not yet giving you what you deserve, but know that day is coming, and we're not given a crystal ball to know when that day will be. Believer, is there any sin that you are secretly holding on to, but you refuse to let go? God is also being merciful to you because Hebrews tells us that he will be faithful to discipline his children. As you meet with your small group, and if you're not in a small group, why not? Ask a mature believer to pray for you. Ask your small group leader to hold you accountable. You might find yourself overwhelmed in your sin. And it seems like there's no way out. We know that that's out there. There is a way out. Don't grieve as Ahab did where you dwell on your circumstances. Our God is a good God. Ask to meet with one of our elders. Come to the prayer room. The people up here would love to pray for you and then help direct you to the appropriate person to come alongside of you.
A few weeks ago, we saw God's holiness, his grace, and his faithfulness as we first looked at Ahab and Elijah. This morning, we've seen our God is a jealous God. He rightfully demands that we worship him and acknowledge him for all that happens in our life. Our God is an all-knowing God. Nothing escapes him. God is a God of justice. He will punish sin. For the unbeliever, that will be eternal separation from God. For the believer, that judgment was placed on Christ on our behalf. Yet God is also a God of mercy. Daily, he does not give us what we rightfully deserve. My prayer is that you will meditate on these truths of who God is and worship him throughout the week by desiring to know him more, bring him glory in all that you do because he's jealous for our worship and make his name great in the conversations that you have throughout the week, whether it's with other Christians or with unbelievers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a great God. You are a perfect God. God, we know that you are jealous for our worship, and I pray that this morning that, that we would want to worship you and bring you glory above all else. God, we thank you that you are an all-knowing God. You know each of our thoughts. You know each of our words. You know each of our actions. And I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit this morning to both restrain us in in committing sin and encourage us as we, as we face overwhelming circumstances and as we face difficult trials. God, we thank you that you are a just God. And this morning as we, as we grieve with uh, the family of Deputy Klinkenbrumer and as we grieve with his many friends and coworkers who responded to that scene yesterday, we, are, we praise you that you are a God of perfect justice. And God, we thank you that you are a merciful God, that daily you do not give us what we deserve, but you are, you are good both to the unbeliever and to the believer. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.